0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element
0: FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show, I have with me, Matthew Scarphone. He is a postdoctoral fellow of philosophy at the University of Toronto. And he has authored an, an article in The Conversation. It is entitled, Why Driving an Electric Vehicle Might Not Be Morally Praiseworthy. I was quite intrigued by that title, so I gave uh, Matthew a call and uh, wanted to get him on the show to talk and expand on this a little bit more. His work also covers meta and in particular moral epistemology, but he also writes about areas uh, of ethics and sometimes epistemology and political philosophy. And uh, I'm just going to ask Matthew if he wouldn't mind explaining a little bit more about this idea of meta Matthew, welcome to the show. Hi David, thanks for having me.
2: So meta-ethics, it's the area of philosophy that tries to understand our moral discourse and practice. Mm -hmm. So it it typically contrasts against um, two other types of ethics. So one is called normative ethics, which is where you see people debating about, is it the consequences of the action that matter? Is it my intentions when performing the action? So that's one branch of ethics. Mm. The other branch of ethics is the, the more applied stuff. So the sort of stuff I'm doing in the article about electric vehicles. Um, where you see debates about specific moral issues like the rightness or wrongness or the praiseworthiness or blameworthiness of driving electric vehicles or euthanasia or what have you. Mm. And and metaethics is this third branch. It just tries to uncover what are we doing when we're engaging in moral thought and practice in the first place. Um, So what drew me to that is just an interest in those other areas of ethics, right? Mm. I was interested in, is it the consequences? Is it the intentions that matter? I was interested in debating like particular applied ethical issues. Mm. But when I stepped back, I was like, well, what's going on when we're even having these ethical thoughts in the first place. Mm. And in meta what they try to do is uncover those commitments. So, you know, what's going on in moral language, what's going on in moral psychology, uh, more abstractly, what's going on with moral metaphysics, uh, and then my particular specialty is, well, what's going on with moral epistemology? How does anybody know that a particular thing is morally good or bad? How do they get in touch with moral facts? Um, so I was interested in analyzing moral thought along all of those dimensions, but specifically the the epistemological and knowledge mm.
0: dimension. Fascinating. That's uh, thank you very much for that explanation. Uh, it really helps uh, us, I think, and and the listeners uh, as we uh, talk about this this uh, idea of why driving an electric vehicle might not be morally praiseworthy, and the idea behind why you wrote that article. So I want to say thank you for that. So I have to ask you first of all, what what drove the idea? I uh, pardon the pun there about uh, writing an article about uh, why driving an electric vehicle might not be morally praiseworthy.
2: Uh, I guess sort of the impetus of this was just having conversations with people mm-hmm. about electric vehicles. Um, I found that people are, you know, they're interested in talking about this, uh, not only from sort of their perspective as a consumer, but also like, you know, what's going into the production of these things, what sort of like, um, infrastructure developments should society be implementing, what sort of ethical issues arise, um. And in having the the specifically ethical conversations, I noticed that um, there was a perspective that was sort of left out of the conversation. So uh, one way to to map this out would be like, okay, if you thought electric vehicles were, uh, say, environmentally beneficial, you would think they are morally praiseworthy. And if you thought they were uh, environmentally detrimental or even neutral, maybe you wouldn't think they were praiseworthy. And when you have like that basic sort of mapping, um, my intuition here is like, well, what happens if we sort of cross um, uh, these categories? So uh, is there a perspective that makes sense where you could think these things are environmentally beneficial, but they're not praiseworthy, uh, or they're environmentally neutral or detrimental, and yet they are praiseworthy. So I wanted to sort of uh, explore that first option. They're environmentally beneficial. I'm going to grant that, assume that, uh, and leave that stuff to the experts. Uh, And then see like, okay, does that settle the case of whether these things are praiseworthy? So I sort of explored this idea. And the more I thought about it, and the more I discussed with people, it seemed like, no, there's there's actually some wiggle room here. So
0: yeah, that was sort of the genesis of this okay um can you elaborate a little bit more what kind of things did you discover in that in that conversation with people about um about you know about the electric vehicle particularly because that's that's exactly what you chose to focus on for this was was is it praiseworthy to uh, and morally praiseworthy for to drive an electric vehicle
2: yeah i, I guess it was more the assumption that um, because it's environmentally beneficial, mm. um, it must be praiseworthy. And as a moral philosopher, I want to sort of understand like, okay, what makes something praiseworthy? Right. Um so again, even if we knew for sure that driving an EV or an electric vehicle would be great for the environment, um, that sort of like descriptive fact doesn't settle what we we ought to do, what's the moral thing to do? The moral category is sort of this over and above thing. Um So, in conversations, um, what I wasn't really hearing was uh, an explanation of that sort of supposed tight connection between this is environmentally beneficial and uh, it is praiseworthy to drive them. Um, And what I was thinking, well, whether anyone should drive these things sort of depends on, you know, what other options are available. Hmm. And that was sort of the big gap in the conversations that the conversations I was getting into and and the things I was hearing from people were artificially narrow about, you know, should I drive an electric vehicle or should I drive a internal combustion engine Mm. vehicle? Mm. As if those were the only two possible things one could possibly do with their lives. Right. Um, And uh, I found that introducing these other options into the conversation was helpful for people um, because it got them thinking about, again, that connection between this is beneficial for the environment, but is it praiseworthy? So once mm. you introduce these other options, that praiseworthiness of driving electric vehicle seems to lessen or dampen.
0: Yeah, I suppose if you think about it, uh, as you say, with other options available, such as uh, not driving. Um, or walking or riding a bike, <laughs> taking public transit. Uh, these, are, these are all options that we don't necessarily get praised for, for doing them. They may be good for our health in some ways uh, if we're walking or riding a bike. Uh, there have, they have drawbacks, though, as well, right? Uh, poor weather, uh, time of year, et cetera, et cetera. There's those kind of things to take into consideration when we're not uh, in, inside of our, our four-door vehicle. Sure.
2: Yeah. So some of the pushback I've got um, in response to this article and just the idea in general is um, people pointing out that I happen to live in Toronto and a very easily accessible mm. part of Toronto in, mm. in terms of public transit. Um, buses are reliable here. Subway is great. Um, I could bike, I could walk to everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people are like, well, not all of us are that fortunate to live in a place like that. Right. Um, and, w- and we do have to rely on our car. Yes. Um, so I, yeah, that totally makes sense to me um, that uh, not everybody lives in a city in Canada or wherever, where they have, um, reliable public transit. Um, but what's that suggests to me is that maybe we should be agitating for better public transit, mm. right? That that's a conversation we sure. can have. That's a direction we could take things rather than saying, because we don't have public transit, we're going to drive. Um, again, as if the the only option there is, well, if if I don't have public transit, then I have to drive rather than saying I'm going to drive. Maybe I could drive less, but I could also agitate for this infrastructure that um, that to me is uh, a better option here.
0: You know, as you're talking about that and public transit and those kind of things, I can't help but think of when I spent time in Europe and the amazing rail system that they have right across Europe and uh, the interconnectivity and how those schedules run on time and how it all runs amazingly well uh, to move mass people around?
2: Yeah, I guess it, I guess it depends a little bit uh, where in Europe you are talking about. Um, <laughs> I spent quite a bit of time in Italy over the past, I would say, five or six years. Yeah. And it's not <laughs> really not so great in Italy.
0: Um, okay. Well, okay. I was in uh, Rome and, uh, you know, parts of, of that area. I, I, where else did I go? Well, you know, the usual areas, Venice and et cetera.
2: Yeah. But uh, especially Northern Europe, um, even Central Europe, um, fantastic public transit there. Um, and like you said, interconnected between these places. Um Okay, so if we're in Canada, um, which is a massive, massive country, yep, yep. Um, we do not have the same interconnectivity between the provinces, right? In fact, we're seeing less of it now um, that, you know, things like Greyhound are shutting down across yep. the, the country um, and Megabus is not really picking up the slack. Via Rail is a little bit um, better, but, uh, you know, could be offering more. Uh, frequent trips between destinations, the fares could be cheaper for people, all these sorts of things. Yep. Um, so th- that seems like an avenue for uh, pressure, right? That we could sure. put on yep. um, the public conversation here rather than just saying, okay, ec- electric vehicles, good for the environment. That's where we're going to put all our energy. Um, we just need a little bit more uh, information into this conversation. I, think. Mm.
0: Uh, I, I know what you're saying, uh, you know, when you bring in the question about I mean, we know that obviously driving an electric vehicle is better for the environment in terms of, you know, emissions and those kind of things. Uh, you know, you bring up the question, of course, around the manufacturing of the vehicles. Uh, I know that uh, at least one, uh, I've driven uh, Volvos for a number of years, and I know that they always boast about the amount of recycling that goes into the vehicle and or uh, post when a vehicle is, is returned. Um, I think they I think they said about 70%, and that was, you know, you years ago when, when, when I remember reading that. So uh, I know that there's different things to consider um, and certainly uh, even around the kind of batteries that are being used and uh, the manufacturing and what that is doing to the, uh, to the environment, even around uh, getting those batteries uh, to the purpose, to the point of being used in these vehicles, like they're used in any, anything else, such as phones, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of questions around, around that.
2: Yeah. I mean, there are questions. Um, My expertise, such as it is, I cannot weigh in on any of this stuff. Right, I'm not an environmental engineer. And I think most people reading this stuff are not environmental engineers. Um, My sense of it as a layperson is just that the vast majority of environmental engineers think that this electric vehicles, even the production of them, all things considered is much, much better for the environment than whatever current system we have now. So yeah, you're right. There are questions, but um, the fact that there are questions shouldn't lead us to think that um, this is sort of like a 50, 50 type thing, um, which is where people tend to get bogged down in this conversation about electric cars. Like, as I said before, some people are like, no, I'm, I'm happy to grant that they're beneficial to the environment and thus they're praiseworthy. And like the other half of people are like, well, I'm just suspicious I'm either they're either neutral for the environment or they might actually be worse if be taken to account manufacturing.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but even those people like uh, presumably they're not environmental engineers either. You sort of, right. you know, you, uh, you sort of glom on to what sort of confirms your, um, your uh, suspicions in the first place. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you're, uh, maybe if you're like, more on the political left, you're you're more willing to accept that these are beneficial to the environment, and if you're more on the political right, you're going to be more suspicious of that. Um, but that sort of political divide does not track the what I see as the um, uh, perspective of environmental engineers. They seem to be overwhelmingly in favor of no, these are beneficial for the environment. Um, so in talking to people, um, uh, I yeah, I guess I wouldn't take people's lay suspicions of their environmental benefits as tracking anything worthwhile. It certainly gives you information about where they're coming from. Um, but the science of this is sort of like, I think, overwhelmingly on one side.
0: Hmm. Um, I, I don't know if you've done any, you mentioned uh, traveling to Italy in the last num- number of years. I don't know if you've been out to the uh, province of British Columbia and or specifically Vancouver recently.
2: Uh, not recently, no, maybe okay. Ten years ago, twelve years oh, ago. Oh, okay, okay. Well, there. well. Uh,
0: I, this uh, earlier this year, I uh, took my son out uh, to help set him up at the University of British Columbia. I had not been to Vancouver for eighteen years, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. and um, I can tell you that uh, uh, from having been there, I no longer call it Vancouver. I call it Tesla Town because literally there's like so many Teslas on the road out there. I could not believe it. Even my son commented on it. I was I was blown away how many are out there. Yeah.
2: Um, did you see a lot of infrastructure around this um, to sort of support people needing to charge their cars on the go?
0: I saw yeah, I saw enough of them. I wasn't looking for them, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I, I'm guessing that the infrastructure is is rapidly being uh, uh, built because of the amount of, of electric vehicles I saw on the road. And um, I saw at least two... And I'm sure that, that just using the one uh, electric car that I mentioned, and then there's, of course, there are other manufacturers making them now, but uh, I saw two Tesla dealerships within the Vancouver area. So I'm guessing that they're going to sell them. They're, they're going to make sure that people are going to be able to uh, service them and get them charged, uh, you know, reasonably.
2: Yeah, so that's a conversation that, you know, as a society, we should be having, right? So if if you're reporting that you saw, like, A majority of electric vehicles happen to be Teslas. Um, As far as I understand it, Teslas need to be charged by Tesla chargers, um, which means the infrastructure here is going to be taken over by a private entity, right? And and that would be a little bit strange um, because it would incentivize people to buy more of this particular Car, rather than you know the system we have now, it doesn't matter what car you mm. drive. You drive up to the gas station, and it, <laughs> the nozzle's going to fit. Yep. Um, but if we turn that over to okay, the Ford dealership uh, sells us the car, and they also build the gas stations. That I don't know. That that makes me a little worried about um, how infrastructure is going to be developed and and what uh, input. Um, private entities having this, rather than the the sort of socially minded thing that I'm after.
0: Well, I think uh, from what I remember seeing, any electric area charging uh, car area, there was always a combination of both for the Tesla and one for the for the other electric cars as well. It wasn't just specifically for Teslas. Um, so I, I think that's being taken into account um, as as these things roll out. Um, but like I said, uh, as compared to other cities uh, and other areas uh, here in, in, you know, the greater Toronto area. Um, uh, you know, even the Oakville area has a certain number of, of Teslas. It's greater than that. I'm, so, I'm not saying it's 50%, but I'm saying there was a lot more of, of the electric vehicle of that nature out there in Vancouver, for sure. sure. I think anybody can attest to that. So yeah. And maybe that
2: tracks what I was saying before about people's political allegiances, right? So um, mm. look, you're, you're, maybe leaning or are on the political left um, and you're thinking more socially minded about, you know, environmental benefits and, and what you can do for the environment. And here's an option that people have sort of, um, that's been made available to them. And they're, they're thinking, okay, if I could buy a car and I'm gonna buy, you know, either the, the electric vehicle or the internal combustion engine, maybe my political sensibilities push me towards buying the um, electric vehicle. Um, which that's all great. Right. So <laughs> I'm not against people buying right. electric vehicles at all. Yep. Um, I just want to, uh, not have our options be artificially winnowed. Right. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. No, I hear what you're saying. Um, because it, you know, the idea of, do we really need to have praise for driving something that that we should, like you say in your article, or ought to be, uh, because it is good for the environment, and it helps uh, lower the emissions that we're all trying to get down, and uh, certainly it's an option in terms of a vehicle that we see in North America, uh, just because of what we were talking about. The way North America has been structured in terms of roads and setup, it, it's not set up the same way as Europe has been in terms of that public transit or the, or in terms of not necessarily public transit, but the ability to move around from one country to another in a very easy, accessible way via the train uh, that they have in Europe, which we don't necessarily, we we didn't get that infrastructure built when the countries were built. Um, It it was more built for roads and and private vehicles and, and trucks and those kind of things.
2: Yeah. And if we're thinking now about, okay, we, we do need, some improvement to infrastructure clearly the the question is just what's that infrastructure going to look like um turning this over to electric vehicles without having this conversation of uh rail systems and bus systems and interconnectivity Mm -hmm. and all that stuff um, seems to make the same sort of mistake it's a little bit short-sighted so Mm -hmm. um the more we can push the conversation now um Maybe when infrastructure starts getting developed, we're in a better position to have something that's going to be um, sustainable, not just environmentally, but just in terms of, you know, what we want our cities and countries and life to look like.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is Moment of Truth on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest here on the show today is Matthew Scarfone. He is a postdoctoral fellow in philosophy at the University of Toronto, and I'm talking to him about an article he authored in The Conversation entitled Why Driving an Electric Vehicle Might Not Be Morally Praiseworthy. I'm wondering, is there anything else on this topic that we haven't touched on that you think we should elaborate? or, or?
2: I guess the specific moral praise aspect of this, right? So, um, so, so what I tried to get out in the article was that... Um, if you think these things are praiseworthy, then we need to give a story about what makes them praiseworthy, right? So, usually um, we praise things that are morally good, mm-hmm. and morally good actions are usually thought to come in two types, right? So, um, there's those that are morally required of us. Um, so, if you have to provide your children with care, that's yep. something you're required to yep. do. Um and there's those that are morally permissible, right? Um, you don't have to do them, but it's, it's good that you do them like yep. uh, treating people kindly. Yes. Um, now, of those actions that are morally permissible, some of them have this peculiar status. And uh, the fancy word for them is that they're super erogatory. Yes. Which just means that they go above and beyond what's required, but they're not themselves required. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So we've got that basic framework. In what way is driving the moral or um, the electric vehicle morally praiseworthy, right? Is it okay. is it required? Is it permissible? Is it supererogatory? Um, and what I would try to do is show like, well, it's actually pretty difficult to, to sort of pin down what makes driving the vehicle praiseworthy here, right? Okay, so if you think it's required, well, one reason against that is that, look, these things are incredibly expensive, right? They're, they're usually... Over Mm $40,000. Um, and most people in the country just don't have that kind of dough. Mm -hmm. Um, now even the government subsidies and incentives that are available, um, those work more as wealth transfers, um, to those who already have significant material means. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, if you're in a position to do de- to be deciding whether to buy the Tesla, mm-hmm. uh, and the five thousand dollars is going to make a difference, mm-hmm. you're already thirty five thousand dollars ahead of most people, right? Uh, in terms of what you can afford to spend on a car, so those incentives seem to me to operate <clears throat> like not as social policies that would make the worst off better off. <clears throat> now, even if you manage to get the car. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you're gonna need a house (laughs) to put your charger. Yes. Uh, And there's a little bit of a housing crisis at the moment in the country. So that's not something everybody has. Yeah. Um, Now, when you take those material qualifications into account to say that anybody is required to drive this electric vehicle starts being, sounding a little bit suspicious, right? Okay, I need a lot of money and I need standalone housing and I need X, Y, and Z, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that sort of pushes us away from thinking that required. Now, what if we thought that they're permissible? Well, again, those material qualifications kick in. Is it permissible to um, sort of display your wealth and privilege in this sort of way um, when there are these other options available? Like you could drive less, mm-hmm. you could take public transit, you mm-hmm. could um, use a bike, you could drive, not at all. Um So the material qualification sort of push us away from the requiredness of these things, but also the permissibility of these things. Mm. Um, But that still leaves us with the third option, right? Um, Perhaps driving the electric vehicle is supererogatory. And and that I think sounds more plausible to people. Look, they're not required because they're incredibly expensive. um, In which case my choosing to drive one reveals that I'm taking on a cost that others are not and supererogatory actions above and beyond what's required mm-hmm. um, because they're slightly costly people. Yeah. Okay, so now we've got one plausible category. They're supererogatory. Um, but again, once you introduce the other options, whether that thing is supererogatory, again, the plausibility lessens or dampens. Um, if you could drive less than you choosing to drive an electric vehicle, doesn't seem as praiseworthy anymore. I'm not right. saying it's there's no praise you could get. It's just the, the, it, the conversation gets a little muddied here. Mm. So, it just doesn't become as obvious once we go through that process as it was at the beginning that, oh, these things are good for the environment. Ergo, uh, it's praiseworthy to drive them. Mm. Um, if you go through the moral categories here and you proceed a little more slowly in the conversation, I think it reveals some things that um, most of us just hadn't noticed before.
0: Yeah, I I mean, as a status, uh, you know, a vehicle and and a statement, uh, for sure, I understand what you're saying. The cost factor, I'm guessing that cost factor is going to drop at some point, especially with more and more car vehicle manufacturers getting into the electric car side of things. Sure, I hope so. Yeah.
2: So just to clarify, I am not at all suspicious of the manufacturing process for electric vehicles. I... I'm happy to defer to the expert environmental engineers who seem mm. overwhelmingly uh, in favor of the view that on the whole, these things are beneficial to the environment. Mm. My concern is about the infrastructure when we only think in terms of individuals driving yes. cars. Yes. And there there has to be more in this conversation. If um, if we live in this gigantic country, um, high-speed rail yep. is something that we're going to have to be taking seriously interconnectivity between the provinces, public transit within cities. So I think you're right that if individuals are thinking, which individual car should I buy? They should probably buy the electric vehicle, but that can't be the only conversation we're having about individual Mm -hmm. consumption choices. This question of what are we going to do as a society? What sort of infrastructure are we going to build? Um, And is it going to work for everybody? So, you know, If you can get these cars down to a reasonable price, I'm not sure what's reasonable for people, let's say $25,000, that's still going to leave a lot of people out, Mm. right? Mm. Um, A lot of people are dependent on ride shares and public transit and biking, and Mm -hmm. they have a voice in this conversation as much as anybody else does. Mm -hmm. So to to have the conversation just be about internal combustion engines versus electric vehicles, I think leaves
0: a lot of people out whose voices should matter here. Mm. Right. Uh, Matthew, it's been fascinating speaking with you about this and and discovering and just thinking about this in a different way. And and I want to say thanks for taking the time to join me on the show and talk about it as well.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, David.
0: That's Matthew Scarphone. He is a postdoctoral fellow in philosophy at the University of Toronto. We'll be talking to him about his article: Why driving an electric vehicle might not be morally praiseworthy. You can find that in the conversation and read all about it. That's this portion of the show. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, David Moses. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more right after this break. With more right here on Moment of Truth. <laughs> Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element.
1: Element. Element FM.
0: Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show, Teril, Halder, and she is here to talk about a new stop-motion animation short film that she just had premiered at (laughs) TIFF, and it is entitled, Beneath, the Hidden Island of Ethics, and so it is a pleasure to have uh, Teril here to talk about it, and uh, say congratulations uh, to have her world premiere at TIFF. Welcome to the show, (laughs) Teril. It's my pleasure. And thank you. It's very exciting. Yeah. Well, speaking of very exciting, uh, you just came off of uh, your world premiere at TIFF. How did it go?
1: It, you know, it, it was it's my first time being in an audience or even on mm. a stage for two years, so mm. there's some kind of magic mm. happening. It was quite a haul. I think the screening of all the shorts in our program was about three hours long. Wow. Um, amazing work, amazing people. And I, th- I think that, especially when you get on the festival circuit and film after film, mm. I, I think... You know, this time everyone was really appreciative of being there and really getting real-time reactions from the crowd, like how they're you know taking in the film. Mm. And I I was uh, very nervous, but I did hear some applause for mine. I really, (laughs) really appreciated it. Yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's great. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) speaking to the nerves and things that get to people uh, as they're there, and and it is nice that some of these things were reopened for Tiff. I know I heard a lot of talk around you know last year year, of course, everything was virtual and, and shut down. And, and so some of the things opened up again this year. And you just mentioned the film circuit as well. And I'm glad you mentioned that because your film, uh, for those people that, that missed it at TIFF, it's going to go on to a number of other things. You're, you're going to be at the Vancouver International Film Festival. You're in the Ottawa International Film Festival, Imaginative uh, Film Festival, which is coming up. So there's, there's some other opportunities for people to, uh, to catch your film.
1: No, it's very exciting. Um, I, I love it. I, I think the rest of the festivals are, as we know, online, mm-hmm. as far as we know, online, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but we'll see what happens as things slowly open up and then quickly they'll say, grab your bag, <laughs> come, <laughs> it's changed now, you yeah. can come in and hang out with actual real people, so yeah. oh. we'll, we'll see.
0: Yeah, isn't it? It is crazy, isn't it? Because one moment uh, things open up, then they close down. It it really leaves us in this very precarious sort of a situation. But hey, we're in unprecedented territory as far as uh, COVID-19 and and all these variants that keep popping up and things. So we're trying to keep ourselves safe as well as everyone else, right?
1: absolutely it's it's i mean that's the most important thing it's selfish as a director because you do want to get the audience's reactions engage in dialogue you know but i mean i i didn't want to sit on the film any longer Mm. i really want it out there um, you know in the end it's 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 an experience you have with the film and not the filmmaker so mm. I'm happy that it's now in the world so
0: yeah uh, I, I like what you just said about that as well uh, and we' we'll, we'll, I, I want to come back to that in a minute just to reintroduce the film it's beneath the hidden island of ethics it's a stop-motion animation film that you created and uh, as I said off the top beneath is a, and and a
1: be <laughs> <laughs> thank
0: you which is Island in the in the language And so, what you were just saying about putting it out in the world.
1: Well, my background is in visual art. Mm. And it really, uh, the experience with film, 100%. Like, I love that all of my films have a life of their own. Mm. They teach me things. They Mm. make friends that come (laughs) back to me. Some people... Uh, treat my films like they're uh, like I didn't make them like they're Mm. their own entity and explain them to me so it's it's actually quite fascinating it's really really a child
0: yeah absolutely now Manith of course features a a child the 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 main character is is baby girl Uh, tell me more about how this came about
1: I was really interested in creating a film about ethics, mm-hmm. uh, and I knew that was loaded. And I also am not a professor or I didn't study ethics in school. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, a POV from a child uh, because mm. she can take these things on, I think with a, with an innocence where there's um, some forgiveness for her misinterpretation, because you know, childhood is a lot about interpreting mm. um, contradictory things and try to make sense of them. So it was really important for me to have a vessel and she's a vessel that you're, I I hope (laughs) that, that, that you're empathetic towards and want to engage with her on this journey.
0: Mm. Uh, I think you 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 do a very good job of that. And I want to also let people know that uh, not not only are you the creator of this, you you narrate it. You also are the the animator, um, and uh, you do a number of other things with the film as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, my background is in art, so I never really learned how to delegate, mm. and I really, um, I, I mean, I, I love sharing the films. But my real passion is learning, and I do compositing, I sculpt mm. the doll. I make the sets and, and I, I have to tell you, I love, I, I've had over the years, people um, wanting to come on board to to help me augment things. I have a really hard time giving that away. Mm. You know, I, I enjoy the process so much, mm. all of the seasons of it. Mm. And, and my hope is that uh, as an artist, all of those things intact is making some kind of weird new hybrid. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. That's my hope.
0: <laughs> you, know, you know, you mentioned earlier about how once these are out in the world, that they really do become their own entity and, and uh, have a life of their own that sometimes they bring back and, and make friends. I thought that was a really interesting line. Um, but what it made me think about was baby girl. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is the actual uh, character that you created for this film. And where will how will baby girl be treated by you the the actual little character that you created not the not in the film but the actual little character that you created what do you what do you have in mind for baby girl
1: uh do you mean physically yeah. or yeah <laughs> i don't I, i'm dreadful i'm a, a dreadful artist because i make things i'm so passionate about them and then i tend to just you know as long if someone could take it out of my hands after I'm done, because I'm always on to the next thing. Mm. I don't really sit and revel in what I've okay. created, yep. uh, and I'm always excited about the next project. And sure. I, I'm working on an, another project with Alanis Obomsawin, so I'm all obsessed about that, and yeah. it becomes my my new passion. The doll itself, I think, is going. We're in talks right now for it to go to the. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this yet.
0: Okay. It they might don't. go to a gallery. Okay. <laughs> a bit.
1: I'll just say that.
0: <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask how long it took for you to put this together?
1: Uh, I think I met my producer, Jelena Poplovic, uh, at the Berlin Festival in 2016. Mm. And, and then we uh, kind of got to talk. So it was sort of a slow start. But the overall production took about three years. Mm. So the bulk of the animation happened during lockdown. Mm.
0: Oh, yeah. Now, you're doing stop-motion animation, and I have never done that, but I hear it is extremely <laughs> labor-intensive.
1: Yes. You, you always know that the person is, uh, <laughs> is crazy um, <laughs> immediately. Uh, no, no, I... I I mean, I don't think I could have done it when I was younger to tell you the truth. I was a performance artist. It had to be really immediate. Right. And there's something really amazing melting into to, uh, this timeless, you know, it's kind of like you slow down time mm. and, and try to get a performance intact, yeah. Yeah. which could take about 10 hours. Sure. So, I mean, ultimately animators are the actors, yep. uh, you know, cinematographers, uh, we stage it, you know, the art of movement. There's a lot that go, I mean, sure. I basically, Basically, walk sideways for two years while i'm trying to think about uh how how to constantly inject a performance into into the movement right it's it's a lot of work and and i collect which my producer i've actually never worked with the nfb before this is the first time i've worked with them and i've created about 10 films so i i really don't Know a lot of other animators, and it's kind of refreshing to know that I collect 20 seconds a day, and that's actually not bad mm. <laughs> for an animator.
0: Mm. That, that's great to hear. I, I really found that comment you just made about walking sideways interesting. Um, <laughs> but but the other thing is, I'm wondering what you have learned from not only this project but from other projects that you have done with stop motion animation and and the movement and the human body or human expression through what you've done?
1: It's amazing. The art of movement. I, I teach uh, in community a lot of youth because I, I actually had a lot of shame about my first film because I didn't know how to animate, but mm. Uh, I was going to make an animated film and I thought, oh, this is terrible. But, you know, from point A to point B, as long as you kind of define your reality of movement, it it can work. You know, you don't have to be an amazing animator from the start to Mm. start animating. Mm. Um, But over the last few years, especially, you know, learning from other people in the last few years, you know, there's only so much you can do on your own. And I am self-taught. But learning the 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 art of movement uh, is so intricate. Contraposto, where the weight is when you stand on one foot, what the spine does, mm. the tra- you know the transfer, of the emotion. Um, you know, I've had some guidance, especially how to get how to make it a bit more. Um, believable mm-hmm. i suppose mm-hmm. i don't use any some animators will use uh, a reference guide or rotoscoping mm-hmm. um and i yep. don't because I, I like kind of the poetry of movement to see what's going to evolve i don't want to be stuck mm. to an actor's performance mm. um yeah I, I learn. i mean if you want to be an animator you need to learn and I'm always learning something brand new and I'm excited and I never want to make the same film twice. You know, I want mm. to be challenged. Yeah. And, and this film, uh, I, I, it taught me so much. It taught me so much. It's a, it's a, it's a film I made out of love and, and not just dis- like a lot of artists. So you have to be dark and in despair. This film was made out of love, mm. even though it's such an amazingly dark journey. Um, it was a joy to create.
0: Well, the journey, uh, you know, it, it, that you're, you, you, of course, refer to in the film and that we are taken on. It, it it does take on some very big topics and it yeah. also br- takes us into a very intimate personal relationship with baby girl. You know, it's very much almost uh, at some points you feel like it's the uh, good devil, bad devil on the shoulders kind of thing, you know, um, because of the way you, you have have uh, set this up and the things that, that are being uh, um, brought towards her. But I, I really liked uh, for people that, that, you know, are going to see this, and I recommend everybody does, uh, it's about 20 minutes long Correct.
1: Uh, just about yes. Yeah. That's right.
0: So um, the the overall kind of things that you get to see through the through the film, uh, you get to see the contrast between the seven deadly sins, and you you uh, bring that through in terms of both English and the language because of, of how you bring that that out, and uh, and it's really interesting to see throughout this whole thing it's just a wonderful little little process that we, we get to see and yes it is dark but it's done be, be, because we see this through baby girl's eyes and we, we get to see her uh, go through this and, um, and, and she's
1: very really brave <laughs> yeah
0: yeah she really is and, and it's really wonderful to hear her say the words you know without giving too much of a spoiler alert you know this is not my fault um, you know and it's so wonderful to hear that as, as she comes uh, comes to that realization later on through the story
1: yes yeah
0: i want to let everyone know that you're listening to element fm in toronto and ottawa and my guest here on the show is tarille calder and she is the animator behind the film beneath the hidden islands of ethics and uh it is it just had its world premiere at TIFF. It's going to be going on to several other film festivals, including the Ottawa International Animated Film Festival. That's from September 22nd to October the 3rd. The Vancouver International Film Festival. And they're in their 40th uh, f- festival this year. That's from October 1st to the 11th. And then... You can catch it at Imaginative, and that runs from October nineteenth to the twenty fourth. So it's a pleasure to have Terrell here talking about *Beneath the Hidden Island of Ethics*, this animated film. So tell me more about the idea that um, of the the sins, the seven deadly sins, and going back and forth and 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 pulling on the language and 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 because really they are counter points of each other and you're you're getting thrown one of the seven daily sins but then you're thrown the opposite of that and 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 that's what we're really seeing a lot of is those opposites and trying to understand those opposites and how they work within us all not only for baby doll but through for all of us and and how the things that that we get uh thrown at our in our own lives uh, and how we interpret them and how how we we are going to look at these things because to some degree it is our choices that we have to make.
1: Yeah. The, the impetus for making this film uh, it was that uh, I wanted to talk about um, colonial systems, which mm. is a very dry subject to take on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's especially now uh, there's been a lot of push for equity in those systems. Mm. And I think a lot of people don't understand what it takes to fit into those systems mm. or what that voice in our head is mm. telling us, mm. you know? Uh, and, and so I was really obsessed with the idea of augmented reality. Oh, yeah. And yeah. there'll be a version of this film uh, that will go to gallery after um after the release. Uh, well, once it does its, its uh, tour of the single channel film. Mm. And I wanted the viewer to have uh, kind of a look into a voice that you don't know, because there's often a misinterpretation um, that I've experienced is that, Oh, you don't know better. And if only you could, mm. you know, then you'll fit into this system. And mm. it's like, well, I, I do know differently. Like I was trying to not necessarily set up a dichotomy between those two systems. Mm. I was really trying to introduce another one,
0: Mm.
1: you know, uh, it it wasn't necessarily because there's lots of indigenous peoples that are Christian uh, and have different faiths. It's, it's the idea that, you know, there are other ways of being a good person. Um, you know, something in my culture is that you don't make, um, eye contact for too long because it's right. rude yeah. and and it's the opposite way in other systems right so that there's it, it's a cultural practice it's ethics it's it, it's so much more than that and it, and instead of always giving people the tools how to incorporate that into the systems i wanted to give them to give them a sense of what it feels like mm those contradictions as you navigate the world. Right. It's like, you have to do it this way. And then it's like, but I know that I should do it this way. I mean, something that I often get is that, you know, that they, people tend to think that my humility is because I'm not uh, proud of who I am. Uh, and what I do, but my humility is I understand everyone's humanity. And this is just where I put my effort mm. and this is what I create. I don't think I'm any more special than anybody else, but it doesn't mean that I'm weak or small, you know? Yeah. So, so there's always these, so so make a film that takes on all of these issues. Um, it was hard. <laughs> it was very difficult. So I thought I would follow the syllabus of using the seven deadly sins and the seven sacred teachings, And kind of almost have Jesus and Nokomis as her her parents, Mm. and that they both really want the best for her, Mm -hmm. um, but they have different ways about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, because we don't get that sense, as you say, um, from either of them about uh, being, you know, hit over the head with "you have to do it this way" kind of thing. It, it's they they both present um, their their sides and what they want to teach and and bring to their to baby doll's life. Uh, mm. So yeah, interesting. Um, being that baby doll, of course, is a, is a, a child and and a young person themselves, the timing of this, of course, is is very interesting. Uh, of course, because of, of the recent findings of the unmarked graves across Canada in at several former residential school sites.
1: Yes, I was thinking about that this morning, uh, as, as it pertains to this film. There, this film gives a lot of room for people to bring issues to it mm-hmm. because it deals with ethics yep. and the idea of what it means to be a good person. Mm-hmm. Um, my fear is that I'm trying to talk about changing colonial systems. Right. And, and and in my gut, I was like, how do I express why this film isn't about that? Mm. Because it wasn't about changing residential school systems because that was genocide.
0: Right.
1: That wasn't us trying to fit into a broken system. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like... You know, so I, I'm but within that, I think that there's a lot of healing, um, what people bring to it. It's always amazed, amazing to me, especially people who are Christian, uh, really feel uh, passionate about how it, it, it's uh, talking about Christianity uh, in a negative way. It's what people bring to the, the film, mm-hmm. I find, the most fascinating. Because then it, they'll say, this is a film about, you know, blank. And I would never deny anyone that experience. Mm-hmm. I, I find it really interesting. And because it's so broad, I'm happy people can find themselves into it. So, if somebody finds healing in it, I love that,
0: you know? Mm-hmm. I guess it also depends on, like you said, it's not only what a person brings to it, but how uh, open-minded the person is around what they are seeing. Right? Yeah. If, they, if they bring a, ne- a negative interpretation to the idea that, oh, uh, Christianity has had such a negative impact on uh, the indigenous culture, as we know through the residential school system, then mm. there may be that automatic negative um, it's true you know that, true. that
1: yeah. uh, and i've uh, argued with people about that it's really funny because jesus is the only one that really takes care of like baby girl he washes her he talks mm. to her he scolds her mm. but 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 he comes out of a place of love like mm. he really does and I, and I was very careful to to create it that way right you know yeah
0: yeah now the other thing you know about yourself because we haven't mentioned this and i and i've kind of sort of done this deliberately your own background is is Métis you were born in Fort Francis Ontario and I didn't introduce you as a Métis artist I'm wondering how you like to be introduced yourself do you like to be because you know there's always even that is is sometimes uh, some people want to be known as the artist who happens to be Métis or First Nation or whatever it is and you know some people don't Really, mind being introduced as you know the indigenous, or you know a person first, and and then the artist kind of thing, or the person.
1: No, I am one hundred percent proud to be indigenous. Mm -hmm. You know, it's part of my experience. It's it's why I'm compelled to tell the stories that I tell. I'm part of an amazing community trying to make change with these stories. I am Terrell Calder Meti from the Fort. (laughs) That's how I grew up, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and. no, I, I, I honor that.
0: Right. Now, you mentioned, I'm not sure how much you can share about this, but you mentioned uh, going on to your next project, which uh, okay. happens to be with uh, Alanis Obansowin. And I'm just wondering if is there is anything you can share around that at all?
1: I can. I'm actually working on two projects with her. Um One is uh, it's with the Glenn Gould Foundation. She's this year's laureate and Mm -hmm. she's going to be honoured on October 4th. Mm -hmm. Because of COVID, they're doing things a little bit differently. And I've commissioned to create a digital mapping um, light and sound projection show. So the film I'm just wrapping up right now during TIFF, so it means I'm so busy, (laughs) is uh, is going to premiere on October 4th. And we projected onto the exterior of the old section of the ROM in Toronto.
0: Oh, nice! Yeah. Oh, I I remember being in uh, Quebec City for their 400th anniversary. Mm. <laughs> and the, I don't know if you were there or if you saw her, but that was an amazing uh, show that they had right across the entire sort of uh, waterfront, I guess, of all the buildings with uh, with uh, illuminations and film and, and, and pictures and, and all kinds of things with sound that reverberated throughout the whole city, uh, downtown uh, city area. It was quite something to see.
1: It's amazing. I did see a show in Ottawa, but I don't remember who did it or why it was there. I was passing and this is fascinating. This is amazing. (laughs) I love it. I'm I'm really happy to be a part of it and learning new things again and learning new things.
0: Right. (laughs) And that's you say that's going to be October 4th. That's right. And that's going to be on the old uh, ROM. That's right. Cool. And uh, and so that's obviously going to be for the public to come down and watch. Do we know what time?
1: I don't know off the top of my head, but I know it has to happen when it's dark. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I <was gonna> say.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> so we'll keep an eye on how soon the sun is dropping. <laughs> they have a lot of publicity out. I'm oh, sure I'm sure you, they do, and yeah. I'm sure we'll hear about it in that regard. Um, and how long of a piece might that be?
1: It's going to be ten minutes long, and yes. it will be
0: presented on a loop. Uh, sorry, be pre- presented. Uh, on a loop so it'll be looped so yeah
1: so if you miss it the first time
0: (laughs) there'll be another time that's great it sounds very exciting and it's you know i think it's really wonderful to see the use of of uh building faces uh for these kinds of projections and things there there really are naturally wonderful um, um walls that we can utilize aren't they
1: Absolutely. It, it makes the city come to life. It's
0: yeah, it crazy. Does. Well, that's wonderful. So that's one of the projects. Uh, did you mention the other one?
1: I, I, I best not.
0: <laughs> okay, we'll have to keep us in suspense about that one. But congratulations on that. That's great. A couple of projects Thanks. with Ellenice, and and uh, she and herself are being, uh being being recognized for all the wonderful, wonderful, uh, and thought provoking and and uh, work that she has done over the years to bring uh, subjects of major concern uh, around First Nation issues uh, to life and and uh, be recognized for that. She's done such an amazing. Job.
1: Yeah, she, you know, she's our matriarch. She's she's an extraordinary human being that I have had the pleasure to get to know and work with, mm-hmm. and yeah, I, I mean, just be inspired by. I'm, yeah, we're grateful that there's an Alanis Obomsawin in the world,
0: aren't we? <laughs> mm. <laughs> that that is for sure. Um, now, just before we finish up, I want to mention again that uh, beneath the hidden island of ethics is going to be shown at three other film festivals. Although it just finished at TIFF for its world premiere, it's going to be going on to the Ottawa International Film Festival, that is from September twenty second to October the third. Vancouver International Film Festival, celebrating their fortieth fortieth uh, festival, and that is from October first to the eleventh. And then imagine native, and that is from October 19th to the 24th. Now, um, Cyril, you were mentioning that you believe all of these remaining film festivals are Uh, Going to be virtual, so online, but uh, that could change and you may find yourself uh, getting on a plane or a train or something and and going out to these festivals. Um, But if they are, of course, online and virtual, there'll still be, I'm sure, some interaction. You may have some some uh, post-show Q&A or things like that.
1: It, it, every, it's, it's fascinating. How every festival has their own way to the response to COVID and mm-hmm. how to do things online. So I think at Ottawa, there will be a live Q&A. Um, I've pre-recorded one for Imaginative and we're pre-recording one for uh, Vancouver mm-hmm. uh, this week. So. Okay. So I'm not, I, I, I just, if they want me there, I just come. So I,
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it's been really fascinating speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show, but also uh, for this wonderful uh, little film that uh, stop motion animation that you put together entitled Beneath the Hidden Island of Ethics, which just had its premiere world premiere at uh, TIFF. And of course, Beneath is Island in the Anishabemowin language and, um, and, and wish you all the best of this with uh, its future uh, showings uh, in Ottawa, Vancouver, and at Imaginative. And all the work that you're going to be doing uh, coming up with uh, Alanis and uh, your, your future endeavors. And I certainly hope we can have you back on the show at another time.
1: Uh, thank you so much, David. It's been my absolute pleasure.
0: All right. Well, you take care and all thank the best. You. All right. And that is the voice of Tyrell Calder. She is a Métis artist that utilizes darkly beautiful stop-motion animation to lay bare baby girl's inner turmoil with unflinching honesty in her new film, Beneath, the Hidden Island of Ethics. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth. We'll see you again next time. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.